Hey all, as a quick reminder, this episode is a re-release of an older episode with Paul Bunker from Chiron Canine that fits into our mini-series on discrimination training for conservation detection dogs. I hope you enjoy it. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Paul Bunker about all clear training and go-no-go procedures for detection dogs. Paul is a canine consultant and trainer specializing in detection and focuses on environmental and conservation surveys. After working with dogs in various capacities with the British military for over 22 years, Paul moved to the USA to support off-leash detection dog, detection dog programs for the Department of Defense. Paul was the program manager supporting detection research projects with academia and the Office of Naval Research. In 2017, he established Chiron Canine, a canine consulting company that supports academic research and proof-of-concept field trials and deployments. He's also the author of Imprint Your Detection Dog in 15 Days. I'm super excited to get to this interview. Paul and I had a great time. I learned a ton. But before we get into it, we're going to dive into our science highlight. This week, we're talking about an article that was published in Methods in Ecology and Evolution, um, the title is An Assessment of the Effects of Habitat Structure on the Scat Finding Performance of a Wildlife Detection Dog. And as the title suggests, they're looking at how habitat structure affects detection dog performance. Basically, these researchers undertook the first experimental study to test the effects of habitat structure on scat detection dog performance. They used one dog, so that gives us one uh, little hint about potential limitations of the study, to find scats from the endangered spotted tail quals. Quals? Quals. Um, in 120 searches across three habitats in both winter and summer conditions in New South Wales, Australia. They conducted these searches in open grassland, woodland, and dense heath. They also recorded the temperature, relative humidity, and wind speed. The performance was measured by recording the distance at which the scat was first detected by the dog, the total search duration, and the success rate of detection in each habitat. The scat detection rates for the dogs were 83% or higher in all habitats, and there was no significant difference in the detection distances between habitat structures, which was really interesting. Um, however, within the habitat structures, there was a significant positive relationship between the first detection distance and the total search duration in the most complex habitat. These results support other findings showing that detection dogs can work effectively across a diversity of habitats, but specifically demonstrates that searches in complex vegetation should allow for increased search efforts compared to relatively open vegetation, and that is a quote from the article. The researchers do point out that the risks of a type 2 error in which the dog fails to detect a species when it is present are likely to be higher in those dense habitats, and that is important to know for conservation management. They note that the high detection rates in their results are discussed in the context of odor thresholds used to train wildlife dogs, and that they recommend future documentation of training to allow comparison of surveys across species and sites. One other thing I found interesting was that the detection distances ranged from 2 to 48 meters, but again, those um, there wasn't a significant difference between um, different habitat types. So, of course, as far as limitations go, this is only one dog and only one target, and only three habitats in one part of Australia. But really interesting to know that the dogs, um, the dog really continued to perform really well in all three different environments. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with Paul Bunker. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Paul. It's uh, we've been, it's long overdue, to be honest. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. I've been a long time listener um, and enjoyed, you know, the the information that's out there. And I think this is a great resource for the community, and I appreciate the opportunity of being asked and um, a chance to talk to people. Yeah, and so you and I originally connected because I had someone from my Patreon um, asking me questions about essentially an all-clear type procedure where she's trying to train the dog to search a specific area um, and kind of come back and say, yes, it is safe to enter. Um, And that was something that I have not taught in the past. I've always done kind of large area searches, more working outside. And I originally reached out to Dr. Nathan Hall. He told me to talk to you. Um, So that is what we're starting from. What, um, in your mind, is... What is an all-clear response for a detection dog? So um, I'll just go over some of the terminology I use because, Mm -hmm. you know, people may have heard of go, no-go, all-clears, and any other sort of combination of terminology that I haven't used. So just so we're all on the same sheet um, and and talking about the same thing, when I talk about an all-clear, It's the dog's conducted some sort of search sequence, whether that's in a formal lineup or a building or a vehicle or luggage, anything of that nature. And it reports, there's nothing here for me to respond on. There's no target present. With Mm -hmm. the go, no go, that's uh, more a presentation of one odor. So it could be, um, I use an olfactometer, which for those that, are on my Instagram will have seen that device. It's a computer-run three-port odor presentation system. Um, But with that, we can have one port only, and the the computer actually presents target to the dog or no target. And in that case, Mm -hmm. the dog goes forward, investigates the port, and tells me, yes, there's target present, or no, there isn't. And that would be a a go-no-go. Um, And I think for clarity as well during the podcast, Mm -hmm. rather than me keep using olfactory investigation, if I just say sniff, just keep (laughs) it simple. So if I say, you know, the dog goes forward and sniffs support and then reports to me formally, there is no odor present, that would be a go, no go. Um, So they're the the kind of the terminology I use. They're very similar. Obviously, the Mm -hmm. dog has formal response which tells me there is no odor present is really the application of how I use that technique and what I'm trying to achieve that makes the term either uh, all clear or go no go and hopefully that's clear for everyone yeah I think so so like an all clear in my mind I'm thinking that would be more like checking an entire lineup, checking an entire room, and a go-no-go is you're presenting like a specific stimulus to the dog and they're saying yes or no to just that. Is that, am I understanding correctly? Yeah, that's correct. And the dog is giving you a formal response. So Mm -hmm. as opposed to the dog just showing behavior that, or not showing response behavior, it actually gives a formal response which says, I don't smell anything which I recognize as target. Um, And that's kind of the difference. So, you know, a lot of people use all clears and go no-goes, but maybe don't realize it or don't actually term term it that. So if we think about searching a vehicle, if you conduct a search of a vehicle and you've gone around it, you're 360 and done your overlap, and then the dog stops searching and wants to move to the next vehicle, 
The handler moves with the dog. Well, if you ask the handler, why did you leave that vehicle and start searching the next one? They should tell you, well, my dog showed no change in behavior. It stopped searching. I'm happy the vehicle is clear and I've moved to my next one. Well, that's not mm -hmm. clear. It's just not formal. The dog has expressed body language, which says there's nothing here that I can find. And that's the same, you know, with a room, the dog goes around the room, it comes back to the door where you're stirred and says, I'm ready to move to the next room or a piece of luggage or a parcel, exactly the same. It's just that in this case, we formalize it and tell the dog, if you don't smell anything, this is what I want you to do to tell me you don't. Rather than having a subtle passive behavior, it's, a, it's an active behavior the dog gives you. With the go-no-go, no go, again, a lot of people use this. We make presentations. So we say to the dog, here's a priority area. Here's a burrow, and I want you to put mm -hmm. your nose into this and just check it for me. And if you give me a response, I know there's something in there. If there's nothing in there, we'll move on. That's a go-no-go, no go, a hole in a tree, a particular mm -hmm. plant, a piece of scat. You know, we make these presentations and we ask the dog, is that your target or not? Or here's a priority area where potentially my target exists. You know, it could be a pile of leaves and I'm looking for a reptile that I think might be curled up in there because it's a cold day. Present it to the dog, step back, watch the dog. It does nothing, moves on, go, no, go. And um, so informally, people do use this in training. It's just that with this system, we make it a little more formal. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. And I yeah, I, I'm already thinking like, oh yeah, when I did when we did black footed ferret work, there were certainly times where I would point out a cluster of burrows and ask the dog to check. Um, which sounds like an informal go no go. And one of the problems that we ran into when we were first um experimenting with that was figuring out how to how to actually show the dogs that, hey, just because I'm presenting something doesn't mean that you need to read into my body language and perform, you know, try to alert to it when there's nothing there, um, which seems like probably one of the most obvious benefits of consciously teaching this. Yeah, so, you know, when we teach presentations, it's not necessarily unusual, and I, d I don't want to stereotype, but it's not necessarily unusual that the dog will give a sit response because you've had a very much change in behavior to what they're used to. All of a sudden you're pointing mm -hmm. something and it's thinking, well, maybe you're wanting me to respond. I'll sit and see what happens. And you go through that yeah. process. By formalizing the training, we're actually teaching behaviors, obviously. And we're saying that this is mm -hmm. what I want you to do when you're presented with odor. And this is what I want you to do when you're not presented with odor. So it becomes very much black and white because the dog understands, okay, if I do this and I'm correct, I get a reward. If I do this and I'm not correct, I don't get a reward. So we're making the behaviors very clear cut in the dog's mind. There's no ambiguity. Um, but as you said, you know, potentially in the field, you could point to something and the dog will just think, oh, wait a minute, why is mum doing that? I better give a response just to see what happens or to keep her happy or whatever it is. And that is not necessarily unusual, especially during the training phases, if you right. haven't worked on that. Yeah, that makes sense. So what are some of the situations in which you know, especially in kind of a field application, you have found it's most useful to start teaching one of these procedures and then maybe how do we decide between which one? Uh, so first of all, um, as I said, they're very similar techniques. It's the application mm -hmm. of how you apply it that's the difference. So the dog is taught the same way in the, the process of teaching it is the same. It's just whether I point to something and say, confirm it's a target or not, or 
I allow the dog to search and at the end of the search come back and confirm it's found something or not. Um, but the training steps are exactly the same. Um, so there's several uses for this. And one of them is if you do an odor recognition test, some sort of lineup, um, whether that's in training or certification, um, it means the dog understands that at times, and I do blank searches, so I do do a lot of blank searches. The dog understands that my target is not going to be or always going to be present, but it's not a stress if it isn't. And I know, you know people talk about, well, never have the odor in the last um, container within an alt lineup or odor recognition test lineup or any sort of lineup because your dog has an expectation it's going to find odor. When it gets to the end of the lineup, it responds on the last one because it hasn't found anything and that's its last opportunity to get its reward. Well, if we actually teach the dog what a percentage of your lineups, a percentage of your presentations don't contain odor, then you're going to eliminate that requirement to actually give a sit response in anticipation that actually something should be present. And the go-no-go is a rewardable behavior. So it's an option right. for the dog that actually, whatever I do, I'm going to be rewarded, whether there's target present and I say it's present or there isn't target present and I say it's not present. It's still rewardable behaviors. And that reduces right. a lot of the stress, the frustration, the anxiety in the dog, particularly those super high drive dogs that are really focused. I want my toy, I want my toy, I want my toy. And it sees the opportunity to get its reward disappearing and realizes if I don't give a response, my opportunity to get a reward is gone. So I better give a response. And um, so odor recognition tests or lineup, it's great for that. We use it in research and Dr. Nathan Hawley, you spoke to about this, we have to try, and I support um, his research or some of his research with a number of the dogs that I have, they must be able to complete a go-no-go -go, and they must be able to complete an all-clear. That is used in, firstly, threshold testing. That is um, assessing the dog's individual threshold. So we know that individual dogs have different detection thresholds whether between breeds, between um, the same breed, or even between litter mates, they can all have different capabilities of threshold. And if, if Dr. Hall and his team are doing research on particular odors and need to know what is the threshold of that individual dog, the only way you can effectively do that is by having the dog taught an all clear or a go, no go. Because in that case, they present the odor and the dog says, yes, I, I can detect it. Yes, I can detect it. No, I cannot. No, I cannot. No, I cannot. And we're not introducing again any stress because the dog understands I'm still getting a reward and I'm going to have an opportunity to get my jackpot at some point when I find odor. But uh, the team can calculate the threshold capability of that dog to detect. The other application is, and I use this a lot, is checking my equipment for contamination. If I'm teaching a green dog, I want to make sure that my equipment is totally clean and I'm not inadvertently presenting um, any contamination of target. So it desensitizes the dog or contaminating my equipment and the dog gives a response and I believe it's a false response and move the dog away. You know, I, I don't want any of those complications. So my senior dog that has taught this technique will actually search my equipment and tell me there is no odor present, it's clean. 
I can then set it up and bring in my young dogs and confident that there is no contamination um, present. I also use this in research for the exact same reason. We check equipment before we conduct a research trial in detection. In that way, we know that none of the equipment is contaminated, so any response on target is an actual response on target and not a false response, or not a false response, but a response because there's contamination present. And that makes um, the research so much more robust if I can demonstrate there was no contamination equipment before we started the actual odor trials. Um, actually, in the field then, we briefly spoke about, you know, if you're presenting a, a, uh, an area that you believe is productive, a nest site, a burrow, a hole in a tree, whatever it is in your or plant or piece of scat, you know, and you're not quite sure, is that my target scat presented to the dog? And you know the dog is trained to either say yes or no. And it will walk away and say it isn't scat or yes, that's a piece of my target. Um, so there are applications in the field, but they're, you know, you have to pick and choose if, if this process is suitable for you. Because if you're just doing wide area surveys, large field searches, for instance, maybe on a bat survey, you wouldn't necessarily need a go, no, go. Unless, right. like there, you know, you are making presentations for some reason and you want the dog to be able to do that. Um, so it's not for everyone, but it certainly has its uses. And the other use yeah. I have is I do a lot of personal research because um, with you know conservation work, it's a growing field. And you know this, and I'm sure your listeners have experienced it, where a potential client comes to you and says, can your dog detect um, species A? Well, to be able to do that, I must be able to demonstrate, obviously, capability, and I'm going to do research trial. And it may not be academic research supporting um, scientists, but it's going to be personal research I do. And again, I want the ability of the dog to actually screen those samples and tell me, yes, I can detect it or no, I cannot. So I use it in personal research while I'm developing programs. That allows me to know um, if sample collection is working, if I'm... Um, able to actually transport those samples through the mail system, for instance, and they're still viable when I get to them in my training lab to work my dog on. Um, I've actually recently developed a headspace collection device, remote collection device, for reptiles and mammals. So to test that, I need to be able to do lineups, and the odor might not be present. And if I keep doing uh, presentations where odor isn't present, it's going to frustrate the dog again. So by having this technique, what I'm able to do is calibrate the, the device, the machine, um, to understand, okay, I need a three-minute draw time of odor at such a pressure to impregnate the best medium possible to capture this scent of this um, species of reptile. And the only way I can do that really effectively is to ensure my dog is relaxed and, and confident in conducting those research trials and that's why also um, the All Clear actually supports that type of work. So while it's not for everyone, there's a lot of examples where it can be used um, and where it is useful to have it in your toolbox, just like a lot of other tools that you could have in your toolbox. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And no, I, I totally agree. Thinking about my summer on the wind farm, I can't think of a time where I would have wanted an, a no-go, no-go, a go-no-go, or an all-clear for my dog. We did 
like the closest we got was if he was working off lead and I wanted to direct him to an area that I felt he had really missed within an area. But uh, yeah, we didn't do anything all that similar to that versus with Barley on a couple of our projects. Now we've had times where I've wanted to make a presentation or I wanted to be able to have him tell me that at the end of a lineup, there was nothing there. And, you know, one of the things that you've mentioned is that, especially with the go, no go, this is now a rewardable occurrence because in theory, what we're doing is basically rewarding the dog for making the correct choice, even if the correct choice is that there's nothing there. Am I still following you right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, see, again, it's making it very black and white. There's no gray in that. You know, if Odo is present, I'm getting a reward. If Odo isn't present and I tell you, I'm getting a reward. You know, there's no ambiguity. And it, I, I keep saying it, but it does take out a lot of that stress and anxiety yeah. and frustration, especially for those high drive dogs that, yeah. that just panic that their opportunity to get a reward is disappearing um, and start to, to give you, let's say, false alert, alerts, but Absolutely. You know, start to just trying it because they're panicking, they want their reward, and there's no other option available at that point. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Because if all they, you know, we, we intentionally select these dogs that live and die for the ball. And then if we're not giving them an opportunity or the only thing that they know how to do in order to potentially get their ball is to perform an alert behavior, you know, of course they're going to do that at times as they start getting more and more desperate. Um, yeah. Yeah. So what are, um, how do you go about teaching a dog, um, these procedures, what components make for kind of successfully teaching this behavior? Um, and are there any like big pitfalls that people should, should be aware of before they embark on something like this with their dog? Yeah. So the actual technique, it is a technique and there is um, a progression that is required to actually make it useful and successful. Just like anything else that we teach, if it's done incorrectly let's say or without prior planning you can actually develop a behavior in the dog that you don't want and it's important to understand that you know with this go no go or all clear behavior you can make mistakes in the way you apply the training and that's going to confuse the dog and the dog's going to start just doing behaviors it thinks you want instead of a clear understanding so there is a sequence to this um one of the big fallbacks is and you know when we first made contact, you spoke about it in your email, which started this whole conversation, was that your friend's dog would go into an area and is supposed to respond on something that was present, but instead of that, came back and said there's nothing present. And it had been taught an all-clear response. And that can happen if the all-clear response, the formal response of there's nothing present, becomes more rewarding than the task of conducting a search. Because the dog learns, well, why do I have to conduct a search? I can actually circumvent that, pretend to do a little bit, come back to you and say, yeah, there's nothing here now, give me my ball. Mm -hmm. um, so you very much have to have this process of training the dog um, in the go-no-go -no -go or the all-clear. And then the maintenance of that is an ongoing thing. You know, you can't stop and sit back on your laurels and think, once the dog's trained, it's trained. This requires a lot of refresher training to keep it um, clean, you know, and to keep it that the dog actually understands target present, respond, I must complete a search um, all the way through. If there's no target present and I have completed the search and then I give you a formal response, 
I am going to receive a reward. So there's different things that actually I use uh, to develop that. The first stage is we do, a, or I always do a reward selection exercise. Mm -hmm. And this is where the dog actually tells me what it finds rewarding or most rewarding, whether that's a toy and or food. And I generally will use both as a, a reinforcer. Um, I'd like my dogs to enjoy both, but it's not critical. I have dogs at the minute that are 100% toy and not treat driven at all. Uh, and a dog that is totally um, treat driven. They've both been taught the no-go, go no-go, no and all clear, and they've both been through research with Dr. Hall. So, it, you know, they obviously work, but I also have a lot more dogs that are driven by both, and I much prefer that because that makes um, the ability to actually shape the behavior of the all clear so much easier, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But the first thing is a reward exercise. Um, the dog chooses what is most rewarding. I develop a hierarchy then of its jackpot toy, its secondary toy, and its third favorite toy. Generally, with the treats, I just keep high-value and low-value treats, and high-value is things like chicken and cheese, you know, the typical type things, and then lower value, I have commercial dog food or whatever. Um, but if the dog is super high-drive on its retrieve ball or whatever it is, then that's always going to be its jackpot. So I do a reward exercise. And then the next level in the training steps is that I use a variable reward in that it might get its jackpot toy, it might get its secondary toy, it might get its third toy, it might get a piece of chicken. But during training, the dog understands I'm always going to get a reward, I just don't know what that reward is going to be. But I will accept a treat in the anticipation that my next trial might give me my jackpot. I will accept a jackpot, and generally I use that for a really good learning process, and then I finish a training exercise, or at the end of a training exercise, and then the next training cycle, okay, I've got an opportunity that the jackpot might come in first session, it might come in my second, my third, but in between I might get my secondary favorite toy or a piece of treat. The dog just never knows. And I'm the one that manipulates those behaviors by selecting what toy or what reward reinforcer I'm going to give and when I'm going to give it. And that goes into, you know, I, I already enter my uh, training session knowing what I'm trying to achieve and how I'm going to reward that exercise. So then the dog understands and accepts that I might get a treat, I might get praise, I might get a jackpot. Um, again, that takes out a lot of that pressure that if you're trying to teach this and all of a sudden the dog's expecting to receive its jackpot toy and you give it a piece of chicken and it spits it out and says, no, you know, I, I always get my jackpot. Where is it? Um, so that's the kind of the first two stages that we go through. And then the next stage is the dog must 100% understand target. Must be no question in the dog's mind. I know what my target is. I've experienced it in um, different presentations, in different amounts, size, uh, different ways, and I know exactly what my target is. There's no ambiguity there. And if it's been reinforced enough times and the dog understands that that target is connected to jackpot as well as variable rewards, then we're ready to start the all clear or no goes. Until the dog understands the target and understands the systems, I don't start go no go. And then I'll actually set up a training session where there's no target present, 
I allow the dog to search whatever the lineup is or however I'm making that presentation. And it must understand the system as well. Um, so it understands, you know, there's a line of six stands with filters on. I know to search them. It under, all that's understood. But all of a sudden, there's no target present, but there always has been. And typically what we see is the dog will go in as normal, search each of the, for instance, six stands, get a little confused. Wait a minute. Maybe I missed it. They'll go back down the, the line. And as they're coming to the end and they start to lift their head away, I just give them a little hint to come back to me. And then I'll give them a, re a reinforcer. And generally for the first two, maybe three sessions, depends on the dog, I'll actually give them a quite high value reward for breaking away um, from the lineup. But for after that, it goes straight away down to low value rewards or lower value. So I'm kind of saying to the dog, have the confidence to leave an area if there's no odor present and you're still going to get a reward. Um, very quickly, though, I reduce the quality of the reward because that can lead to what you spoke about me in the first place, where the dog learns, all right, I don't actually have to respond on a target. I can just pretend to search and come back to you, and I'm going to yeah. get the same reward for little effort. But if it understands, now this is where we're going into black and white. If it understands, when tar if I do a search and target is present, that is a shortcut to my jackpot. If I do a search and no target is present and I come back and tell you, I'm still going to get a reinforcement. It's not mm -hmm. a shortcut to my jackpot, but I'm getting something. I'm then going to get another opportunity to search again. And if target present, I'm going to get my jackpot. So we're kind of brainwashing the dog and manipulating those behaviors to say, look, if target is present, that's your shortcut to your jackpot. And it's the only way you're going to get your jackpot is based on target. But if it's not present, you come back to me and tell it's not present, you're going to get something and another opportunity to go and find your target. Um, so generally, I don't like to finish any training on a blank, on a uh, mm -hmm. not jackpot reinforceable training session. I always like to finish that the dog understands at some point during this training session, the jackpot is available and I am going to get it. And as I said, I generally then finish training on a jackpot so that the dog understands, okay, I get what I want as long as I keep going, keep going. Um, so hopefully that process is kind of clear, but you can understand how if you don't do it carefully, you can inadvertently make a, a dog that actually pretends to search and then just comes back. And that's why, you know, one of my first responses was to you was don't use your jackpot for your all clear. Use a lower value. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, figuring out, you know, what your dog's hierarchy of reinforcers is, is obviously, as you said, the first step for that. Um, and that makes really good sense. And I like uh, also that you pointed out that, yeah, we might use that that jackpot the first couple sessions to really help the dog understand what we're trying to do before we downgrade. And yes, we're downgrading quickly. But I think one of the other problems that I've heard some people talk about when they're trying to teach this is that they start trying to reinforce an all clear type behavior right off the bat with the lower value reinforcer and the dog is if the dog isn't used to getting this variable reward then again they're in this situation where the dog is like no 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 I want my ball this chicken isn't doing it for me you know I'm going back to search <laughs> you're full of crap this is out here somewhere yeah and you know you've spent all that time reinforcing the correct behavior of the search 
and there's going to be an odor present, you're going to get a jackpot. You've really reinforced that and the dog's practiced it. And all of a sudden you're saying, come away from that opportunity to get your reward and come back to me. And again, that can be a very conflicting for high drive dogs. But if it does that a couple of times and gets its jackpot, it's more likely then that it's going to repeat that behavior and you start to, it starts to understand, okay, that is a rewardable behavior again. But as I said, we very quickly have to get rid of that jackpot out of that sequence. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So is there anything else we wanted to say kind of on like the reward selection and variable reward? I know that was a question I'd written down. We already talked about the fact that that was likely to meld all together. Yeah, no, I, you know, like everything else and, and um, people that follow my social media or um, have read my book know that progression plans are extremely important. And, um, you know, the sequence of actually achieving any training technique is very important. You can't shortcut this. If it's not done correctly, it can lead to a lot of issues. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a powerful tool. It's a tool that I train all the dogs to do. But it's one that can be messed up very quickly if you don't do it correctly. Um, and therefore, it's important that those steps are followed implicitly. Because if you don't, you know, you're going to make that gray behavior. So you're going to make the dog confused about what it's to do or it's going to understand, all right, I don't have to search anymore. I can just pretend to and get my, my uh, jackpot reward. So it's important that people follow those steps implicitly and are able to think on the fly, you know, and there's times when I've worked my dog, you know, and even my experienced dogs, and just like any training, you know, we come across a problem during training where the dog develops a behavior that we're not used to, we haven't seen before, whatever it is, we have to change our behaviors on the fly and actually deal with that. Whether we stop the training session and said, this isn't working, I'm going to have to make an adjustment, or we adjust that training session immediately to get the behaviors we want. Um, so a thorough understanding of the all clear system means that you're able to do that. You know, you can read your dog, you can read the behavior, you can read the situation that's presented in front of you and know, do I reinforce this? Do I not? Do I stop training? Take a break, we come back, problem solve, etc. But because it can be um, manipulated by the dog, you have to be on your toes. You know, some dogs are very good at manipulating behaviors to get you to to provide a reward. So you have to be on your toes for that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and one of the other things I'm thinking is that I could see this actually being a procedure that's potentially a little bit trickier to at least maintain with a dog whose reward hierarchy isn't as extreme. Um, you know, like I have one dog who will absolutely spit out a fistful of warm boiled chicken um, if there's a ball around. Um, and I have another dog who is who really will kind of take it take both. He's very happy with both. And I could see potentially it being easier to, to at least again maintain that hierarchy and maintain the behavior with the dog who I know that every time I give him chicken, that is still a reward, but it's far lesser for him versus the other dog whose hierarchy isn't quite as extreme. Yeah, so I have got two dogs at the moment. Um, one is one hundred percent ball, nothing else. He will spit out chicken cheese. He's not interested whatsoever. I have another dog that is 100% treats, a Labrador. No interest mm -hmm. at all. Um, and the approaches are very different. And I keep saying train the dog in front of you. 
So <laughs> you have to be able to assess the dog in front of you. Now, with the Labrador, he is so treat-driven. He will do anything to actually get a treat. So if there's odor present, he will tell you. If there's not odor present, he will tell you. And the way that I trained him was to change the training cycle slightly, that once he understood when there's no odor present, if I come back, I get a piece of cheese. I then extinct, it, extinct the incorrect behaviors so that if odor is present and you come back to me and say it isn't, you don't get cheese. And he is mm. so focused on food, he got so annoyed with not getting the cheese that actually that cured that problem. You know, he's never going to give up an opportunity to find an odor and get cheese. He's going to make sure he does that because if he misses an odor, it removes the opportunity to get that cheese. And that is gotcha. more important to him than anything. So, you know, that worked for him. That was a slight change to the program because, you know, the way he is. With the ball-driven dog, what I did was he gets his ball for odor. If there's no odor present, he gets play. As in no ball-driven play, but just play with me. Now, I'm fortunate with him. He likes his cuddles. He likes his affection, but nowhere near his ball. He's ball crazy. But at least he gets something. And yeah. more importantly with him, because he is so driven, if I then release him uh, fairly quickly and there's a target present, he understands there's no target, I come back. It's not an unpleasant experience, but I'm released again to actually have an opportunity to get a target. So he'll actually do that because saying there's nothing present opens the door to something present. And again, that worked with him as an individual dog because his search drive and his desire to move forward and actually find his jackpot means that he's going to say there's nothing here because that opens the door to something being there. Um, and that's what I thought, you know, it's not just an easy technique to use. You have to uh, be able to adjust on the fly based on the dog in front of you and assess the individual dog. There is, you know, potentially, and I don't have one, potentially there's another dog in the group that only likes treats, but when it doesn't get a treat um, through the extinction process of not responding, it totally breaks down, you know, and, and just flummox. It's an individual thing and you have to right. adjust your training based the on the dog in front of you. Yeah, of course. No, those are really great examples. And I think all, one of the other things that I'm catching is how important, I would imagine, especially early on, but probably for quite a while in this sort of training, it actually is for the handler to know, <laughs> like you're not doing, you're not teaching this blind as a handler, um, because you really need to know whether or not the dog missed odor um, and is coming back trying to perform an all clear and has actually missed it. Am I correct there? Yeah, critical, absolutely critical, because you know, your influence on the behavior of the dog is obviously gonna dictate the whole process. So you must know in the early stages, where the target is and when the target is not present and be able mm -hmm. to shape those behaviors. As we progress through this, obviously at some point that we're confident the dog has the capability and understands the system, then we go double blind. You know, and that takes mm -hmm. away that influence of the human, it takes away the clever Hans um, syndrome or whatever you want to call it, clever Hans mm -hmm. um, influences that can exist. And it really means that the dog is acting on its own based on what's presented in front of it. I cannot influence through any body behaviors or sounds I make or anything to influence the behavior of the dog. And, you know, I might, if the dog goes up and down the stands twice and I know it's a blank and it starts to go down a third time, I might inadvertently just go, hey, or something, you know, that 
Mm -hmm. manipulates those behaviors and I don't want to do that. So we go double blind very quick on that. My name is Key and I have a two-year-old working Cocker Spaniel named Cooper. Cooper and I are new to this field of conservation detection dog work. So I am loving being a Patreon of the Canine Conservationist. Uh, we get to meet once a month via Zoom with people all over the world and watch each other's videos and um, give input. And it's just been such a wonderful learning opportunity. Um, on top of that, I'm really excited about something that's about to start, which is a book club that we're going to be going through a scent book that I tried to go through on my own and realized I really needed some more help. So it was perfect timing for me. And I'm really looking forward to that. Um, just being able to meet people and talk through issues and um, better understand the whole field of canine conservation work um, has just been such a, a great thing. And Kayla and the canine conservationist have played such a huge part in that happening for me. So thanks, Kayla. That makes sense. Yeah. Are there any other procedures? You know, again, we've talked about how helpful these um the all clears and the go no goes are for reducing stress and reducing these false responses. Are there any other kind of tricks that you like to pull out of your hat for that particular issue? Yeah. Um, so first of all, I teach odor separate from my systems of search, and they're not codependent. So that um, odor is very much a separate exercise from any search, whether it's a vehicle search or baggage search, a field search, whatever it is. Um, the survey techniques are taught using positive reinforcement, but they're taught, and it's difficult for me to say obedience because it's not an obedience exercise, but if you think about it, that it's actually all my directionals, left, right, stop on whistle, come back to me, search this area, whatever it is, are done through reward-based training, then odor doesn't become a critical part of the survey process. The survey process or the search process is its own rewardable exercise. Mm -hmm. Decades ago, when I started training, we used the odor to teach systems a search. This meant while a dog was searching, it had an expectation for me to get my reward, I must find odor. And if it didn't find odor, again, you get those hydride or any dog, but you start to get those hydride dogs that get frustrated and see the opportunity of their reward disappearing because it's not there, particularly in real life searches where there's nothing present. But any dog might start to get uh, fed up with searching, 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 and nothing's found. But if the odor is just a shortcut to my jackpot, but it's not necessarily always present in my searches, and the searching behavior becomes rewardable, then it doesn't matter if odor present or not. The dog is not um, in a, a state of mind that it has to find the odor to get its reward. It understands that both techniques are rewardable. It's just when I discover odor, it's an instant opportunity mm -hmm. to get a jackpot. It's a bonus to the search. It's not a requirement of the search. And in real life, you know, we go out in these surveys and there are times where we find nothing. Um, or the dog has to work for hours and hours and find nothing but maintain motivation. And I find by keeping them both separate, it means you're able to do that. I do a lot of blanks. So generally we do between 20 and 50% of our searches and search training is blank where there's nothing present. Again, because the behavior of actually conducting search is rewardable. If I give a directional turn right and the dog does a really nice turn right, I might throw it its ball. 
If I do a stop <laughs> on whistle, I might throw his ball. If I do a stop on whistle, come back to me. It might get a piece of chicken. You know, throughout the whole process of a survey, it's a rewardable experience. So I do a lot of blanks. And again, that means that the dog doesn't have a high expectation. When I go into the field, I'm going to find something, and therefore I better give a false response if I haven't found anything. It goes into the field knowing that there's opportunities to get rewards. And finding odor is the shortcut, fastest way, but it's not the only way, and it's not always going to be present. Double blind searches um, are very important, I think, where you don't know, you have no idea where the target is. It makes you a lot more relaxed, I believe. You're less likely to influence behavior of the dog. Um, you're more likely to handle the dog a lot more naturally. You're not, um, you know, you're not giving out those behaviors where the dog gets close to odor and you suddenly stop and, and go quiet right. and all those cues the dog needs to start giving a response and they can actually become part of the response cycle or the response training that you've imprinted into the dog during training. So double blinds stop all that. Um, so blanks, double blinds, very long searches, long search duration, depending on the weather, um, 40, 50 minutes instead of, you know, just 20 minute searches and get the, the training done. And I used to call it the 20 minute sit. We would see this a lot in the military, one of my prior projects, where the dogs, the student only had 20 minutes a day to work um, with its dog. And the dogs would sit at the 20 minute point or near two because they learned okay, I work for 20 minutes and odor's always at the end. It's about 20 minutes. I'll give a sit response. So I called it the 20 minute sit. My so gosh. you need to alter those durations and keep the dog going for long periods of time. Obviously, welfare and breaks, et cetera, depending on environment, terrain, um, weather conditions and such like. Um, but if the dog has an expectation that, again, I'm going to go for long searches before I find anything, then the day it happens isn't going to be a stressor. And again, it's not going to think, I've been working long enough. Let me throw a sit here and see what happens. But also with that is the clear odor profile, a thorough understanding of the target. When I smell target, I give a sit response. But if I don't smell it, I'm not. And by having that clear understanding of what my target is, then the dog isn't going to give, I suppose you term it, false response on something mm -hmm. that actually it's not been trained on, whether that's disturbance or something um, out of context in the area that all of a sudden the dogs come across and so I'll give it a go. Um, I'll just give a sit on this glove that someone has dropped and it's got fresh human scent on because it shouldn't be here. Instead, you know, if it understands 100% what its target is and that's reinforced, but it understands what its target is not, just as importantly, it knows to move on. Um, so there's kind of some of the principles that I use throughout my training process uh -huh. to actually clean up a lot of these behaviors and prevent false sits, uh, false alerts. Um, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be false. It's just the dog has been taught through training that a certain sequence of behaviors happen at a certain time. And it's not that the dog's being bad or is wrong. Right. It's just that at some point we've communicated something that isn't quite clear <laughs> or it's doing what it thinks it should do. You know, and, and a lot of cases that is the case. The dog just does what it thinks it should do because it doesn't quite understand what we want it to do. And it, right. again, progression plans, um, planning your training, being very um, 
sequential in your training steps actually resolve a lot of those issues of ambiguity in the dog and the dog making up behaviors because it has to guess what you want. You yeah. haven't communicated effectively what you want. Yeah, that clarity and training is so, so, so important. I had one other question that came up. Um, I posted on Instagram last night that I was going to be interviewing you and got a couple of questions. And one touches on something you just mentioned, which was expanding on these these search skills. And particularly, I think the question revolves around the idea of how do we, how do we maintain search independence and focus for the dog? Um, as you're doing that, or has that not been an issue for you where the dogs are kind of looking to you for these directions and other ways to start trying to get their reward beyond just seeking odor? Because I, I know that's something I've heard before as a concern for, say, re rewarding a dog for a recall during a search or something like that. Yeah, so um, I develop independence very early. And again, if, even if you look at my clicker videos, and I, I should have said this right at the start, Whatever I do, I'm not saying this is the only way, and I'm not saying of it's, course. The, it's my way, you know, and, and this is the way I do things. And that my mindset is like this because it's worked for me, and it doesn't mean it will work for other people. Um, but even when I'm clicker training, which is always, I, I clicker train all my dogs. Yeah. Even if that dog is never going to use clicker again in its training um, plan, it is clicker trained. And there's a number of reasons why I do that. One, it's a tool in the toolbox if I need it. Um, but also, I think clicker training gets the dopamine going. It gets uh, the understanding of I'm in a learning process, get my brain actually in a understanding of how to learn and what to learn and things. Um, I can then teach three behaviors with the clicker, which I typically do. I'll do a lure behavior, a shape behavior, and a capture. And that gives me tools in my toolbox if I need them later on. But it also means with a clicker, if I transfer that dog to a student and the student's timing isn't quite right or their voice inflection isn't quite right or something, I can mm -hmm. take the clicker and actually take all that pressure off them of having to worry about rewarding the dog at the right time and the right behaviors. And I do that. So it means, one, I'm removing a lot of the stress on them of having to think about how do I search my dog? What's my position? What body language am I looking for? Because I'm doing the actual click for them. But also when I do click and they're observing the dog, they can see that's what he clicked. Now I start to see what he's seeing, you know. So I click or train all my dogs for that reason. Um, and I think, you know, that sets up that learning process because during clicker training, the dogs don't look at me and I click and I treat, which I know is done by some people when they're bridging, pairing, charging, whatever you want to say, the clicker. I actually throw it away from me. And the dog learns I must move away from him to get my treat. So oh, very early on, I start this you know, process of move away from me. Don't look at me. Um, it's not a rewardable behavior to look at me or have any interest in me. There's options out there for you to receive a click. And then all training is done um, self-discovery. I don't train a dog on leash. It's all done off leash. I set up the environment so the dog can be successful, but I don't show the dog what it's supposed to do. I want the dog to be able to problem solve. So if a training session is ongoing and the dog is being challenged, I don't want it come up to me and say, help me, show me what I'm supposed to do. What I want it to understand is 
you're not going to help me and show me what to do. I need to work this out. Now, again, there's a balance there because if the dog signs show displacement behaviors. If it's getting confused, etc., I'm going to stop and I'm going to reset up the environment so it can be successful. But what I don't want the dog to learn is walk up to me, act helpless, and I'm going to walk forward and present where the odor is and say, here, I've solved the problem for you. And again, it's a balance. You know, that self-discovery learning is a balance between allowing the dog to learn and understand independence without um, confusing the dog, causing displacement behaviors, ruining training session. Again, it goes into that planning your session before you start, stopping it if things aren't going right, and reset on the fly to actually develop those behaviors. And then 99% of the time, all my outside training is off leash. I mean, there's times like vehicle search and things where it's on leash, but all my early training is off leash, whether it's in a room or mm -hmm. in field surveys. Um, so the dog, again, has to be independent from me. So it learns independence, but at the same time, um, the directionals, the control, if you like, um, they are positive reinforced. There's no negative in there. So the dog yeah. learns, if the whistle goes and I give a sit, I'm going to get a reward for it. There's no pressure uh, mm -hmm. on the dog. You know, it's not panicking that um, I must complete this behavior. Um, otherwise, you know, something negative is going to happen. It's actually, here's an opportunity for me to get a reward. I'm, I'm actively happy to do it. And I think that, that level of uh, stress reduction, that level of um, keeping everything calm and the dog really wanting to work all day and just have every opportunity to find its reward means that the dog understands um, self-reliance, it understands independence, it understands problem solving. I can step in when needed to help guidance, um, but I you know, people comment how my handling technique is very relaxed, very laid back. And I don't talk a lot during the searches. Um, I give feedback as required, but actually allow the dog to do a lot of its work. I mean, that's what it's supposed to do and concentrate on searching. They find something, give a response, it's going to get a reward, you know, and that um, I think that all, you know, the whole methodology, the whole process melds together in the end to produce that independence. Um, but it has to be done with forethought and care. You know, you can't just, you don't want to produce a wild dog um, right. who understands, okay, I don't need to listen to you. I can just run out and find odor. I don't need you to tell me what to do. So again, that balance is very important. Yeah, it really seems like, I know, I think it's Sarah Strumming says a lot that balance is a verb. And I think the first time she said that, or the first time I heard her say it a couple of years ago, I didn't quite get it yet and the more the more and more i think about it the more it makes sense of yeah we want this balance between the dog obviously being able to hear us and being able to respond especially for safety cues um and independent searching and i know i've talked about this previously on the podcast when i was selecting my puppy niffler one of the big things i was looking for was one of the more independent puppies in the litter because i was looking at a litter of border collies and they are, you know, as far as breeds of dogs go, if you want a dog who's going to sit and stare at you for hours, that's the dog you should get. Um, versus, I, I and I've, again, I've said this before on the show, like if I was looking at a litter of cockers, I wouldn't necessarily be worried about picking the most independent cocker spaniel in a litter because that's just not as likely to be part 
of that breed's repertoire. And then through training, I'm continuing to influence whatever I need more of, more of that independence or more of that responsiveness. Um, and yeah, I, I personally have not had a lot of problems with the dog coming back and seeking direction from me unless I've set up something that's just beyond that dog's skills, even though I, I do really like my dogs to be pretty responsive. And I also do reward some directionals and reward recalls and those sorts of things. It really seems like the times where my dog, particularly Barley, if he's coming back and asking for help, it's because things have gone on for too long without any reward at all. And he's just really starting to get tired, and frustrated, desperate, whatever it may be. Yeah, and as you say, you know, some of this can be breed dependent. I love Border Collies. They're my favorite breed. Yeah. I was really training Border Collies. But my approach to train a Border Collie would be very different from at the minute I've got a Springer Spaniel, um, you know, when it's just live wire. And if I train the Springer Spaniel the same way or handle the Springer Spaniel the same way as the Border, it would close down. You know, the, the dog would actually go wild and, and I would lose everything. And vice versa, if I handle mm -hmm. the Border Collie in the same way as the Springer, it would just get so frustrated about all this, you know, on top of it and telling it what to do and stuff, it would close down. So you have to be able to adjust yourself again based on the dog in front of you. Um, and although the principles for training the all clear or any of these steps, you know, are guidelines, within those guidelines, there has to be adjustment based on your dog and, and the way you handle. You know, it shouldn't be just, well, this is it and this is the way I do it you must be able to change on the fly based on what is being presented in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there anything more that you wanted to add or anything else you wanted to circle back to here before we go? Well, I think um, one of the most important things, and I've mentioned this before a couple of times is progression plans. I think if you prepare um, for your training sessions, you set them up, you really, your preparation take a lot longer than your actual training. And if you yeah. have prepared correctly, if everything is ready, um, whether you've set up the environment for the dog to be successful and to achieve what you're trying to achieve, um, or you've made sure that your odor is a really good source of odor, or whatever it is, preparation is key to an actual very short training session, but that will be a lot more productive than just going in there blind, thinking, oh, I'll do this today, and I'll do that today. Um, so I think progression plans, write your progression plans down, make sure you stick to them. If your dog is not progressing within the progression plan, then adjust, go back a few steps, then move right. forward. You know, that planning um, really, I think, is critical in successful training of a dog, um, in reducing frustration of you as the trainer handler as well as the dog. Um, but plan, 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 definite. Yeah. And, you know, the last thing that I wanted to ask you about was about your book, which is kind of on the opposite end of, you know, you know, we, we said right off the bat that before you even start thinking about a no-go go or an all-clear, your dog has to have a really clear understanding of odor. And your book is about that, I presume. Yeah? Yeah. Um, I call it imprinting. So, you know, back in the UK, I, during my training, we always said we imprinted on odor. I know there's other terminology. Um associate and, and bridging or whatever but you know when i talk about imprinting i'm talking about introducing a target odor to a dog and then eliciting some sort of response and what i wanted to do was um, write a book and i'd been wanting for quite a lot of years and i had the opportunity on a 30-day write your own dog book course to actually produce a book i wanted to produce something that was easy for people to get into 
Um, and it was during COVID, you know, that their pet <laughs> dogs are stuck at home. Everyone's stuck at home. The dogs are getting frustrated. And it gave people this opportunity to do something with their dogs. Um, now, it covered a, a wide gamut because obviously the technique could be used in, for HR, for search and rescue, or if you wanted to do drugs detection. But also it could be taught to the pet dog that you just want to do something with for a bit of fun and find my keys, you know, if I lose them sort of thing. It covered the full gamut, um, but I just wanted something out there for the community where they could pick it up. It was a standalone document that, and it's a workbook, you know, and I call it a workbook, that they could work through with their dog, whether they wanted to go into some sort of working dog, formal um, training, or they just wanted to do it for a bit of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's great. It's um, I've heard really good things. I actually have not purchased a copy yet myself as a confession, but um, it's certainly on my, It's. It, I think it's been sitting in my Amazon cart. Um for a little bit here. Um, so yeah, and Paul, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you, um, stay up to date, all of that good stuff? Uh, so the website, um, uh, my name of my company is Shaiwan, although I know in US um, it's pronounced Kaiwan. It's C-H-I-R-O-N dash K, the number nine dot com. Mm-hmm. Instagram is where I post a lot of things now, um, mm-hmm. which is, Shiron K9, all one word, so at Shiron K9. But there is links off my uh, website to my different social media platforms. Um, and I'm just starting to launch an online course, Paul, as well, which again is linked from my website, but I've only just started that platform. So hopefully soon I'll start some more online uh, training opportunities for people and actually explain some of this sort of stuff as well. Oh, great. Yeah, well, I'm sure people are going to be very excited to hear about that. And we'll link to all of that in the show notes so that our, our listeners who are driving or walking the dog or whatever don't have to uh, try to jot anything down quite yet. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Paul. It's been a pleasure. Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. And uh, thank you for everyone that takes time to listen. Thank you all so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill sets. You can find those show notes, donate to Canine Conservationists, and join our Patreon where you might ask a question that spawns an entire podcast episode over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time.